The book of 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul around 67 AD to his son-like apprentice Timothy. Sensing that his life was nearing an end while once again in prison in Rome, Paul speaks beyond his circumstances to encourage Timothy's perseverance in the faith. Paul thanks God for Timothy and his family's upbringing, which laid the strong scriptural foundation for his faith in Jesus. He goes on, encouraging Timothy to not be ashamed of the gospel or of himself, as many had lost respect for him due to his repeated imprisonment. Considering the undoubted suffering ahead for Timothy, Paul likens following Jesus to an athlete training or a farmer working, willing to sacrifice and face challenges to accomplish a greater goal. He calls Timothy to a faithfulness like Jesus' faithfulness to the Father. Pointing to the inevitable false teaching that will rise up in the church, Paul encourages Timothy to keep advocating for submission to the authority of God's Word. He affirms Scripture as divinely breathed by God, used to challenge the thoughts and behaviors of Christ's followers, ultimately instilling in God's people patterns of righteous living and a continual recognition of their need for Jesus. 2 Timothy reminds us that by following Jesus, we're inviting pain and vulnerability into our lives. Yet in our trials and suffering, Jesus is not absent. It is through our weakness that his love and faithfulness is made known and compels us to fight the good fight of faith. Well, 2 Timothy is one of my favorite books in the Bible, so... um, Let's pray and ask God to speak to us, all right? God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity we have to open your word. And God, we know that when we open your word, you speak. And so would you do that through me or in spite of me? But would you do that, that we might be encouraged? Maybe that some of us might have faith awakened in us for the first time. And for others, that we might persevere uh, till the end. So God, would you lead and guide this time? And get me out of the way so that people hear from you. Ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Who's the most influential person in your life? Maybe a mentor, spiritually or vocationally, someone who has invested in your life that you love dearly. Imagine receiving a letter from them, and it was a letter with the end in mind. The last letter that you would get from them. How do you think those words would hit you? How often after they're gone would you pull that letter out and read it or reread it? Or maybe flip the script a little bit. If you knew that the end was near and you could write a final letter to someone who is dear to you, a son, a daughter, a spiritual son or daughter in the faith, what would you say? What would you not say? That's the context of 2 Timothy that makes it amazing, honestly. It's the last letter that we have of the Apostle Paul as he is staring death in the face. He writes it to his spiritual son in the faith, a man by the name of Timothy, who's journeyed with him for over a decade, become his right-hand man of sorts, and was probably the closest human being to him. He's at the church of Ephesus and leading the church there. Letter to him. We, we, in, we can get the indication of course in chapter 4. At the end of the letter, Paul writes this. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. 
I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Isn't it interesting that on that day, Paul essentially says, I made it. I ran the race. I fought the fight. I kept the faith. And now I get the reward. And it's not just my reward, but all of those who long for and hope for the appearing of Jesus Christ. You see, the letter hits differently, doesn't it? Paul's first letter to Timothy was filled with all kinds of practical and pastoral wisdom, like how to appoint leaders in the church and how to lead and how to correct false doctrine. But this letter is far more personal to Timothy as a man, a son, a Christian, and a bit of a reluctant leader. Paul fills it with personal charges and encouragement. He hasn't given up, but he knows the end is near. The Apostle Paul, here we have the the, the persecutor turned prophet, the the skeptic who became an evangelist, the, the Jewish Pharisee who spent the second half of his life making the gospel known to the Gentiles, now pens his final letter, and it just hits differently. Would you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 13? That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Let me read. These words, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is God's word. The Apostle Paul says a lot here, doesn't he? He uses various metaphors and examples. He invites Timothy to think over these things and says, the Lord will give you insight and understanding into them. But what exactly is he saying? I've kind of boiled it down to three things. Here they are. Stay focused on making disciples, verses 1 to 7. Endure faithfully in view of God's promises, verses 8 to 10. And the key to endurance is to keep your eyes on Jesus, verses 11 to 13. So stay focused, endure faithfully, and the key to endurance being our eyes focused on Jesus. We'll look at each in turn. Stay focused. Stay focused on making disciples. The core command of this chapter is found in verse 2. This is the main imperative for him. He says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
The things that you hear me say and teach, pass them on. Don't keep them to yourself. They're meant to be shared with others that other disciples would be made for Jesus. Essentially, make disciples of Jesus who are equipped to make other disciples of Jesus. You could even argue that unless someone makes a disciple, they have not yet become a disciple, that this is meant to be passed on. Notice there's four generations of Christians here, isn't there? There's the Apostle Paul who is teaching, not just Timothy, but in the presence of all, that nothing of these things is secret. It's, it's plain for everybody to see and hear. There's Timothy who's been entrusted with his teaching. There are those that he has to pass it on to, faithful men who are available and humble and teachable and also have the ability to pass it on to others. So four generations, Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, faithful men to others. Now these last words of Paul sound an awful lot like the last words of Jesus, don't they? Go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and I'll be with you to the end. See, Jesus said before his charge, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, in light of that, go and make disciples. And then he closes with a promise, I will be with you wherever you go, even to the end of the age. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he, his final words are this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Paul, likewise, before he gives this charge of entrusting to faithful men who are able to teach others a, a word of promise, he says in verse 1, you then, my child, Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So God charges us to make disciples, but he promises us to help. He will give us his spirit. He will strengthen us with his grace. This task that he has entrusted to us will not fail. That's encouraging, isn't it? So know that you have a job to do, but unlike the, the rough jobs that you have, you actually have the resources that you need to see it through. You're going to be strengthened and encouraged and empowered for this task. You know, in an interesting way, Christianity is always one generation from extinction. Do you know that? Because it doesn't pass on through blood. It passes on through faith in the work of the Spirit, in the work of Jesus that the Spirit opens our minds to. The, the, the Christian faith is always one generation from extinction, and yet it's never going to go away. Why? Because it will be passed on. Because the Spirit will make darn sure that it's passed on. And we are a testimony to the fact that it has been passed on from generation to generation to generation through disciple-making people like Paul and Timothy and the ones that they entrusted it to. Now what's crazy about this is this is the task that's been given to all Christians who have been filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not just for a select few or for paid professionals, but actually the, the work of the church is all of us making disciples who make disciples who make disciples, which is why if you go to any church, that's the mission statement, pretty much. We exist to glorify God and to make disciples or some variation of that, but that's pretty much what Jesus gave us. We're locked into that reality. And if the mission of the church is something else, we're not the church. We're doing something else. Um, it's interesting here that regardless of who you are, there are people that you can pass on the faith to. 
So when we read this, we, don't, we shouldn't just think of like church leaders or, or Sunday school teachers or, or whatever. Like we should think of everyone. Like, so kids, teenagers, if you are a Christian, then you have been entrusted with the message of the gospel and the things that you have heard others teach you, you are actually meant to pass that on. That means that you might have a younger sibling that isn't yet a Christian and you can tell them about Jesus. Or they are, but they haven't lived as much life as you or they haven't experienced some of the things that you've learned and you actually get to pass it on to them. Middle school, high school, college students, you have been entrusted with the gospel to pass it on to those who do not know as much as you do. Do you see how empowering that is? That means that this work of the church is your work. It's not just mine. That you have the Holy Spirit now, and even if you're young, there are some who's not as far along as you are. And you get to participate in the vital work of the church. Here's a principle I think we can draw from just verse 2. We should all have someone ahead of us, alongside of us, and behind us in following Jesus. We should all have someone who's older than us in the faith, who's pouring into our lives and encouraging us like Paul does to Timothy. Mentors, fathers, mothers, spiritual fathers and mothers in the faith. Someone in whose faith we admire that if our lives began to look like theirs, that'd be a good thing because they follow Jesus wholeheartedly. They don't have to be spectacular or remarkably gifted, but they're faithful and they have a faith that is compelling. Those are the people that you should want to hang out with. Those are the people that you should want to like sit with and do chores with and learn from and have them tell you stories. Not only that, but there should be people that you run with, people alongside of you, friends that you dream together. You think about what could God do in our generation if God got a hold of us. And there should be some people in your life that you're further ahead then. And one of the things that I found is that often we don't really learn things until we have to teach things. We don't really learn a lot until we actually have to pass it along to others, and then the learning really gets down to our heart. And so it should be our expectation that a healthy Christian life has someone pouring into us, someone running alongside of us, and someone that we are pouring into. And parents, I would just say, make sure that the people that you're pouring into, your kids also make that list, okay? Not just them. Obviously, God calls you to more than that, but God calls you to that, to pour into your kids, to, to steward their lives, to invest in their lives in such a way where they love and serve Jesus like you do. And here's the thing. Christians in general have more, Christians that, or more children than non-Christians. If we just reached our kids with a compelling faith, we'd be growing. Puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Not that everything needs to focus in our, on our kids. Like, like it, there's, there's a diminishing returns if it's not overflowing in all of our life. But guys, simply passing on the faith, God has entrusted you with those lives. And there are a lot of kids around here right? And we can't do it alone. It's not our task to do it alone, but it is our task together. Now, this isn't a new charge to Timothy. He's probably heard this a million times from Paul. So why put it here? Why tell him this in the final letter that he writes to him? Because I think there's an element of disciple-making that needs endurance, stick-to-itiveness, to keep doing this, keep entrusting the faith to others who can pass it along to others. And to help Timothy kind of reflect on the grit needed for this, he gives them three metaphors. A soldier, an athlete, 
and a farmer. And my guess is one of them is probably going to land with you. He says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding into everything. Don't you love how the Bible is meant to be read and reread and pondered and thought about? Here now are given three illustrations, three metaphors, and he says, think on these things. Timothy, think on these things, Christians in Duluth, Minnesota, a soldier, an athlete, a farmer. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So what do we learn from a soldier? A soldier is singularly focused. He has an objective to complete. He or she has a commanding officer to please and to listen to. No soldier who is deployed to Iraq or to Afghanistan spent their time there scouting out potential vacation property. One, because those aren't all that nice of places to live, but, but more than that, there was an objective for them to complete. They weren't home. They were sent on a mission, and the mission was what their commanding officer gave them to do, and that served the greater mission. And so their goal was singularly focused to please their commanding officer, to do the mission, and, and even if it cost them something. Even if they had to endure hardship or suffering as a result of that, that's what a soldier does. Similarly, an athlete is focused on winning the race or winning the competition. They train, and they train in order to compete and to be crowned the victor. Every year the Olympics roll around, we see these crazy stories and the dedication of these athletes to pour themselves into something that might last 10 seconds or a couple minutes. They train, they endure hardship, they compete, and they have to compete according to the rules in order to be declared the victor. What does that have to do with discipleship in Jesus? I think it means that we need to have a, a little bit of grit, a, a willingness to not always do what's easy or comfortable, but to train ourselves, to limit our freedoms sometimes for the pursuit of greater freedoms. Paul said in his previous letter to Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, rather train yourself for godliness for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. As a young man, I was devoted to baseball, to training my body, my mind, to practicing fundamentals so that I could hit a ball and catch a ball. And sometimes it's a little embarrassing to think back on all the hours that were devoted to something that really has very little meaning or bigger purpose. Sure, I love the game, but like, it's amazing how we will build our life around excelling at something as trivial as baseball. Or families will construct their entire calendar around making it to games and tournaments and things like that. And then when it comes to developing ourselves spiritually, we're like, well, I don't want to be a legalist. Oh, I'm meddling now. I get it. My kids are in youth sports. I'm not against youth sports. I'm not against sports in general. In fact, I like them quite a bit. But it is amazing to me how much work we will put in to that and how little effort we will devote to our own godliness and training ourselves in righteousness. There's something about the dedication of an athlete and their willingness to compete according to the rules that teaches us about following Jesus, enduring hardship, and disciplining ourselves. Finally, a farmer is likewise singularly focused on growing crops. 
Growing plants is nice, but the purpose of farming is to harvest a crop that can actually feed your family, right? To do this, a farmer works hard and has to depend upon God to bring rain. And so naturally, he should be the first to enjoy the first of the harvest, the first of the crops. As Paul gives these metaphors to his spiritual son, what is he telling us about discipleship? Well, discipleship of Jesus takes endurance. It takes grit. It takes hard work and a willingness to suffer at times. It takes focus because it's easy to get distracted on civilian pursuits and things that don't actually accomplish what God has for us to accomplish. So stay focused on making disciples. That's the point of these first seven verses. This is what we're called to do as individuals and what we're called to do as a church. We multiply disciples of Jesus who make other disciples of Jesus to bless the city and the region and the world is how we, do, how we say it. In fact, one, one could argue we haven't actually made disciples and still, until they start reproducing and making other disciples. So here's the point. Church, there are so many things that we can do, but this is something that we must do. Show me a church that has lost their sense of mission, and I will show you a church that is filled with programs, but almost none of them actually make disciples that look like Jesus. There are social gatherings. There are age-specific classes galore. There are this event and church softball team and, and quilting social. and, and all. You're like, oh, are you going to keep going and offend all of us? Yeah, probably. <laughs> but at the end of the day, our task, our mission is to make disciples of Jesus that look like him, that value the things that he values, that care about the things that he care about, and that begin to look like and sound like Jesus. So to make a disciple, you have to know what a disciple is. Wouldn't that be helpful as a church if we actually specified what a mature disciple looks like? I know if you've been around for a long time and you've heard the, the six core identities, like if I just bring that up again, you're going to be like, Oh, we get it. Do we? <laughs> to preach. That's the one thing. Thank you. Thank you for that. Here's the thing. I'm kind of bored with them. And yet, they provide a target for us of what exactly are we doing here? What does a mature disciple look like? What does a maturing disciple look like? Well, it's someone who embodies these six identities. Now, there's more, but you just gotta, you got to specify and clarify. It's someone who's a worshiper of God in all things, meaning there's no sacred, secular dichotomy in your life anymore. All of your life is God's life, and all of your life is meant to be lived in worship. It's someone who identifies with the family of God, and so your, your, your actual tangible sense of community should feel like an extended family, meaning you make a commitment to each other, and you bear with one another, and you forgive one another, and you hang with and stick it out and work together like you do in a regular family. Only this family reflects Jesus' values. That we are servants of God and of one another. That, that at the end of the day, the, the decision has been made. My life is not about me. It's about God. And so my gifts and my abilities and my time and my money and everything in my life is put on the table for God to use at his disposal. I don't, the orbit of my life should not revolve around me, but rather God and his purposes. And so I'm a servant in all things. Fourth, we are witnesses of what we have seen and heard. The, the gospel that interrupted our life that happened in human history also intersected our life at a point in human history. And so we testify not only to the truth of Jesus and who he was, but what he has done in our lives. 
And that all of us have been entrusted with this message and serve as witnesses to every nook and cranny of the town, the community. Everywhere we go, we are witnesses of him. We reflect him to a watching world. Fifth, we are prayers. We actually get to commune with God and talk to him and listen to him. And so we actually do that. In prayer, it, 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 it creates a vibrant spirituality that's exciting, not dry and dusty. Because God actually wants to talk to us and lead us and guide us and empower us. And so we pray. And finally, puts it all together, spend the rest of our life figuring it out. We're learners. We haven't arrived. We're on a journey. We've crossed a line of faith somewhere along the way, but we also are growing into who God has made us to be in Christ. And so we rest in who we are, and we strive to grow in godliness. Why do I bring those things up? Because that's what a disciple is. And those are, that is what's supposed to be reflected in who we are as people. Are we those kinds of people? Are we making disciples who make disciples? Now, if you're like, Kyle, I don't want that to be part of my life. This is not the church for you then. Because that's what we're going to try to do. Because we think that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Now, there's more to it than that. But it's certainly not less. We want to follow Jesus and look like him. And the things that have been entrusted to us, we want to pass to others. So we know what we're aiming at. So Paul writes to his son in the faith. Stay focused on making disciples. What you've heard from me, pass on to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Now, the question is, how do we do that? Well, he tells us, endure faithfully in view of God's promises. Rather than giving a five-step approach, he actually points to two examples, Jesus and Paul. Remember Jesus Christ, verse 8, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Remember Jesus, risen from the dead because the resurrection gives us hope. This mission will be accomplished. The offspring of David. Jesus didn't happen in a vacuum. He came into an existing story and is the fulfillment of promises that have been made for thousands of years. He is the Messiah, David's heir. As preached in my gospel, my good news, that we keep on believing and it reorients our lives. And then he shares from his own example. In fact, this gospel, this good news has landed me in chains. It's caused me to suffer significantly. Paul's first defense of the gospel didn't go very well. In chapter 4, verse 16, we read, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. It didn't go well to defend the Christian faith before Caesar the first time, and so he kind of has a sense of the inevitability that God still could rescue him, but it's not looking likely. And so there's a sense of the end, the inevitability, that he might die in chains for this cause that he has given his life to. And at all times we would say, you know, if anybody deserves a pity party, it's Paul and how faithful he served and this kind of end for him. But he doesn't take a pity party. Rather, he chooses to focus on the contrast between his present condition and what God's word is doing. He says, I'm in chains, I'm in prison, and it looks like the end is near. But the word of God is not bound, is not chained. In fact, it is thriving. God's word isn't bound. It isn't isolated or chained. You can't contain it even if you arrest its preachers. Guys, this is so true, not only of Paul's world, but all through the history of the church. 
You go to places where there is severe persecution, and often what you find there is a thriving church. Now, sure, they have some struggles, and they have some longings that they wish, like, that we have that they don't have. But generally, it's a spiritually vibrant church because there's no incentive to follow Jesus other than Jesus. And he alone is satisfying. See, sometimes we end up with such an impotent church because we come up with all of these other reasons to follow Jesus that have nothing to do with Jesus. When, like, being a good church-going person, like, gives you social clout or something like that. We're coming out of a season in which that was actually a generally well-respected, good kind of thing. That would give you something. And now they're like, oh, man, you're kind of a freak. You still believe that stuff? You're probably a bigot, aren't you? Do you hate gay people? I mean, all the time. I don't know if you guys are getting this in interactions, but all the time. It's, that's the general tone. Guys, when there is no incentive to follow Jesus other than Jesus... It's hard, but usually the church thrives because it has a way of purifying the church and those who are actually disciples of Jesus stick around and those who aren't don't because they're not actually about Jesus. And so do I wish for persecution? No, I don't, not at all. If it comes, will that probably be a good thing for us? Maybe. Because here's the thing. You have to come to a point where you're like, is it about Jesus or is it about something else that he can give me? And if it's about Jesus, your faith will endure. And if he's the one that satisfies the deepest longing in your soul, you realize that everything else might be taken away from you, but you still win. Because Jesus is that good and that compelling. He says, I am a, a criminal suffering, but the word of God is not bound. It's not chained. Guys, this has happened over and over again. Let me just give you a couple examples. In China... In 1949, when the new government, the communist government, came into power, one of their goals was to stamp out the church. It was seen as a Western religion. They wanted to stamp it out and replace it with the state. And so over the years, the last 70 years, there have been so many different like bouts of government-sponsored persecution. In 1949, there was about 700,000 Christians in the nation of China. Do you know what there are today? About 200 million most of them in underground churches. Why? Because the God's word is not bound. And, and the more promises that other things make, the more disappointed people you end up with because they're not Jesus. And we weren't created for that. Or even the good gifts of God can't sustain the weight of God. And so it lets, leaves us pretty frustrated and longing for something more. And do you know that there's actually more Christians in China than there are in America? So this idea that Christianity is this Western religion, it's like, well, it started in the Middle East, and yes, it moved West for a while, but now there are more Christians in the global South and the global East in Asia than there are in, in the West. So can we just like maybe put that to rest? Additionally, you want to think about a country that is hostile to Christianity. Think about Iran. State-sponsored Islam, one of the most persecuting of any other religions that, that exists, and there is an incredible movement of disciple-makers and Christians in Iran right now. Like, the church is literally exploding over there, and it costs a lot to follow Jesus. Because guess what? The caliphate and Islam doesn't actually fulfill the deepest longings of people's soul, because it's not true that Jesus is. 
I tell you this so that you might echo the trust that Paul has in the Word of God, that even where Christians are bound and chained, the Word of God is not bound and chained. This led the Apostle Paul to an interesting conclusion in verse 10. He says, therefore, in light of the reality that God's Word is not bound even though I am, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Therefore, in light of this truth, I will endure whatever I have to endure for the sake of those that God has chosen. I will do whatever I need to do, suffer however I need to suffer, so that those God has chosen might hear the gospel and obtain the same salvation that I've obtained. Now, this might sound heroic, but maybe a little bit vague. In a couple other letters, Paul listed the sufferings that he experienced in order to make Christ known to those that God had chosen. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. You're like, why 39 lashes? Because they came to the conclusion that about the 40th lash, someone would bleed out and die. So they're like, we'll just go 39. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That means people threw rocks at you until they thought you were dead and left you. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea, like floating on the flotsam. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. There's no safe place. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have gone often without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then, besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Why did he do it? We don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess. He tells us. I endure all things for the sake of the elect, those God has chosen. Knowing this reality deep in his bones, that God's word is not bound, and if he but preaches it, there are some people that will respond in here. Now, I won't dwell too long here, but, but it's worth pointing out Paul's deep belief in God's election, his high view of God's sovereignty motivates him toward evangelism, not away from it. He never fell into the error that thinks, well, if salvation is completely and wholly aware, it motivated him. He believed with all of his heart that salvation was a work of God, so the work that he was called to do would succeed. It motivated him to preach, to disciple, to go, and to endure that list of sufferings that those who would believe would hear and know Jesus and obtain the salvation that he had experienced. This should motivate us as well. It's not all on you. So preach. Salvation is a work of God, but God chooses to use you. Therefore, you should echo this belief that I'm willing to endure whatever I need to endure that those who are chosen might believe. Well, who are chosen? I don't know, and you don't either. So let's just be indiscriminate about that, okay? Let's let everybody know about Jesus. And those that God works in, those that God opens their heart and their ears and their eyes, all scriptural metaphors that we're given, will respond. We're guaranteed that. And so it sets us free. It's not all on us. And it sets us free. It's on us. 
to accomplish the mission because God doesn't just choose the end. He chooses the means. That's us. So stay focused on making disciples, he writes. Endure faithfully in light of God's promises. Finally, the key to endurance is to keep your eyes on Jesus, fixed on him. Verse 11, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Anybody confused? I am. The key to endurance, the key to perseverance, to finishing our race well, is to keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus himself. He starts, if we died with him, we will also live with him. So if we've been united to him, we will live with him. This is a promise that's so clearly pictured for us in baptism that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are spiritually united to Jesus so that everything he did now is credited to us. In baptism, we are united to Jesus in his death so that our old self died and is buried and is washed new and clean. And just as Jesus came up out of the, out of the grave, so we come up out of the baptismal waters to live a new kind of resurrected life, a life that foreshadows the coming resurrection with a new heart and new desires and a new spirit within us. And so if we died with him, if we are united to him by faith, then we will live with him. That's some beautiful gospel promise there, Okay? Second, if we endure, we will also reign with him. See, there's a, a, an exhortation here to endure, to persevere, to overcome. It is the overcomers in the book of Revelation that, that get to reign with Jesus in the future. This is a clarion call from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, and he knows he's a believer. I mean, if anybody knows Timothy, Paul knows him. But he says, you need to persevere and continue and run, endure. This isn't denying the grace of God that forgives him and strengthens him, but, but in, instead invites him to lean into that so that he will endure. Now it gets confusing. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. What in the world is he talking about? This is both a warning to us and a promise. Don't deny him. Stand firm till the end. You can't read this charge and think, my life doesn't really matter. What I believe or whether or not I endure, it doesn't really matter. You can't read that way because there's a significant warning here in the scriptures that's part of God's grace to you. Don't be faithless. Don't deny him. But even if you're faithless, he remains faithful. So the million-dollar question then is, Pastor Kyle, how do I persevere? Can I fall away and deny him? If I do, will he deny me? Who does this ultimately depend upon? Yes. Persevere, remain, believe, endure, because he is faithful and he will see it through. There's a tension here in the scriptures that we are not meant to resolve or solve, but simply affirm. We are called to endure. We are called to persevere. But realize at the end of the day that he will be faithful to keep us. He will hold me fast. There are tons of promises in the scriptures about the Holy Spirit sealing us and guaranteeing the future inheritance, strengthening us, preserving us, being faithful to us. And yet, there are also very clear warnings in the Bible, do not fall away. Keep on believing the truth. Trust, endure, overcome to the one who overcomes. What do we do with this? Is it on me or is it on God? Yes. Ultimately, it's on God because the one who gives the grace sustains us till the end. Practically speaking, 
That means lean in and endure. Isn't it amazing that in chapter 4, Paul says, I've come to the end, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, I've fought the fight. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. Paul, the one who is preaching this, the one who wrote half of the letters in the New Testament is saying, I made it till the end because God held me fast. That's the tension that we're meant to live in. That he will finish the job that he started, but part of his finishing the job that he started is a call and a warning to you to persevere and to keep on believing the gospel. Paul cares deeply for Timothy, and he indirectly cares deeply for us. He wants us to joyfully endure and to run the race and to keep the faith, to live lives that matter for eternity, which means we make much of Jesus and we are not only disciples of Jesus, but we make disciples of Jesus. So as we close, let me just get really practical with how we can take this home. Question number one, who are you pouring into today? Who are you passing the faith on to? If you're, if you're wondering where to start, there's someone who hasn't followed Jesus as long as you have. Or there's someone who maybe isn't even a follower of Jesus that you can tell about him. Start there. Or maybe start with Rock Hill Kids. Those, those positions are filling up. So you, you gotta like, you got to leverage in and, and say, Meg, I really want to do this, okay? Like, one of the ways that God shapes and forms us is when we have to pass it on to someone else. And think about it. There are a lot of young people downstairs who do not yet know Jesus. And you might be part of their story. Or maybe start with teenagers, middle school and high school students. Talk to Josh and say, hey, Josh, I want to get involved in youth ministry. I want to start passing on the faith in a meaningful way. Or maybe there's a college student that you've connected with or, or, or that have them over intentionally invest in their life. Or maybe there's a young mom or a young father that you're like, I remember that season. It's hard. It's hard to even get a thought to yourself, much less have a vibrant spiritual life. I want to take them under my wing. Or maybe there's someone who's, who's on the, the other side of life, the, the older end of life, and you're like, I want to learn from them, and I want to hear stories, and I want to be an encouragement to them. And so I'm going to take my little kid to the nursing home, and we're just going to hang out for a bit. We're going to learn, and we're going to listen, and we're going to all be encouraged by that. Who is it that you're passing the faith onto? Second, who are you learning from? Do you have a mentor? Someone who speaks into your life with godliness and wisdom. Someone that you admire how they follow Jesus in the ordinary stuff of life. Who can you ask to say, hey, could I learn a little bit of the faith from you? Could you disciple me? Could you mentor me? Ask yourself before going to them, am I faithful, available, teachable? If we set a time, will I actually show up? If we actually make a plan, will I follow through? If you're actually looking for a mentor, think about how can I not be a burden to their life but an encouragement? Maybe instead of going out for coffee, I just come and I join you for chores because you're busy. Or maybe we grab lunch because that's the time that we all have to eat and so maybe that's that. Or, or maybe there's another thing that overlaps in your life, but who is pouring into your life? Maybe ask God right now, God, who is it whose faith is genuine and real? that might be able to teach me, that might be able to kind of walk with me and don't immediately think of a pastor, although I think they're awesome and they do a great job with this. Think about someone in your church, someone maybe you're sitting by right now that you're like, they really know Jesus. I'd love to learn from them. Who are, who are your friends? People that you just kind of run with, that you are totally transparent with, that you dream dreams together and you think, what might God do in our generation if we really grasp this? you got to have all three. got to have all three. 
mentors, those you're pouring into and those that you run with? Who are your friends and the people that you could dream dreams together? And maybe what it takes is just adding a little of intentionality into those conversations. Rather than just talking about the ordinary stuff of life, say, hey, what do you think God brought us together for in this season? What might God do together? Speak words of honor and encouragement to one another. Hey, I really admire this about you. What do you think God might do? Who are you pouring your life into? Who are you learning from? Who are you running with? Number four, does a high view of God's sovereignty fill you with hope and a desire to act? It should. If you think that God's sovereignty causes you in any way to just kick your feet up and say, God's going to do it, you have misread the Bible. God wants to use you. And it's not ultimately on you, but God wants to use you. Fourth, when it comes to persevering till the end, do you hear the biblical warnings rightly? Not as a crushing, devastating blow, but as something meant to warn and spur on your faith. My charge to you today is to endure because he will hold you fast. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for how it encourages us and challenges us, provokes us. I pray, Holy Spirit, right now that you might even bring to mind people that might be mentors, people that we could pass on the faith to, people that we could run with that would mutually encourage us. God, it is not good when we are alone. And so would you stir and move and give us faith and boldness to actually reach out and take the first step today. Jesus, we want to endure till the end. As you promised, will you hold us fast? We pray in your name. Amen.